Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, the Other People Podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this program, more than 600 episodes and counting, are all available for free. It's entirely free. If you like the show and you want to throw a few bucks in the hat, you can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Okay. Thank you. Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. I have Adam Popescu on the program today. He is a longtime journalist who has written for publications like the New York Times, Washington Post, Vanity Fair. He's done work for the BBC, just to name a few. And he has a debut novel out called Nema. It's available from Unnamed Press. So my conversation with Adam Popescu is coming up. I don't have much to talk about here. We're now into October. September was by far the biggest month in the show's history. So thanks to you guys again for listening. Uh, I forget what, I think it was a hundred, the audience in September was a hundred percent bigger than the audience in August, which is uh, unusually high growth. And it's the fourth consecutive month that the show has broken its uh, 30-day listenership record. So huge thanks for, you know, for listening and spreading the word. I can't say it enough. Otherwise, uh, one thing I did want to share with you, I don't normally talk too much about my day job stuff, but I am working for a company called Knowable, which is a venture-backed platform that just launched this past week. You might've seen it in the news. If you follow that sort of thing, it was in TechCrunch and Yahoo finance and so on and so forth. But, uh, it's an audio education, uh, company, you know, we make audio education. I'm a producer for them. I produced a class called how to sleep better, which is an in-depth exploration of sleep, how to do it better, what it is, why we do it, how it works dreaming, lucid dreaming, all of it. I interviewed experts from Oxford University, Stanford, um, like leading sleep doctors, people who work with like the Navy SEALs and, you know, all this kind of stuff. So it's a really interesting uh, project that I worked on and listeners of this program can get 20% off. Uh, it's like a four and a half hour course. Uh, 
Plus you get, uh, there's 14 hours of extended interviews, I think, or 13 hours of extended interviews. There's guided meditation, sleep music, uh, some bedtime stories from Ben Laurie. For those of you who know Ben's work, he's been a guest on this show. He's a buddy of mine. And it's uh, 100 bucks. So you get 20% off if you use the offer code OTHERPPL. If you want to do that, just go to knowable.fyi and check it out. The course is called How to Sleep Better. And uh, like I said, listeners of this show get a deal. It would be great. If you're interested in sleep or if you have problems with sleep, um, it's, it's worth it. It's pretty cool. So there's my plug and let's get on to the program. My guest again is Adam Popescu, journalist and author of the debut novel, Nima, available from Unnamed Press. It was great to meet him and talk with him. He's been, uh, you know, he's an adventurer. He's been all over the world doing uh, interesting things, chasing down snow leopards, like we get into it. So here he is, folks. This is Adam Popescu and his novel, One More Time, is called Nima. I feel like I've suffered plenty. I don't know if that's really helped me. I don't think that there's you should have to break apart financial gain and, and happiness with art. You know, I think sometimes there is this, these romantic notions. Listen, you have a house, you have kids. You should want to to make these things grow and develop and whatnot. And I think that the natural way to do that, I think, is is uh, cashing in give me a large percentage for <laughs> giving these ideas. Well, yeah, you could be my manager. Well, I need somebody. I, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let's talk about you. Let's talk about Nima. This is this feels to me like uh, a bit unexpected for a guy with your profile to write sure. a book about uh, a Sherpa, a young Sherpa girl sure. in the Himalayas, written from her perspective, her point of view. Like that creative choice, uh, I have to imagine you weighed the risk in terms of like what the response would be. I can imagine there could be a voice in your head um, thinking like, you know, what right do I have? And do people really want, you know, some guy from right. the West to be taking this on? And do I have any uh, authority to do such a thing? And so on and so forth. So for listeners who are coming in cold, why don't you just give like a brief overview of the of the novel and then also talk about... Um, the experiences and the decision-making process that you went through that led to you writing it. So the novel Nima is a work of fiction that takes place on Mount Everest. I was in uh, Nepal and I went to Everest in 2013 for the BBC. I went to base camp, which is 18,000 feet and takes about two weeks. And you have to walk through glacier and ice. I went in December, which is very cold. Well, they always climb it in May, though, right? Yeah, because the weather window. And when I got to base camp, there's there was nobody there, you know. So it was in a way, it's much more stark and atmospheric, and more difficult weather-wise. When you say cold, how cold? At eighteen thousand. Um. See, it's a different kind of cold. The reason I. Uh, when I was on this trip, you never really get warm. So if my socks get wet and I'm sweaty, or my socks are wet because I step in icy water, I have to put my feet by a fire, a real fire, and the boots really never dry properly. And I have to walk, we walk basically five, six hours in the morning, and then you stop for lunch, 
you try to warm up and maybe change your, your layers because they're wet and cold. And then you walk five, six more hours and you stop at these tea houses where there is no, there's no central heating. There's no, you know, showers. If there are showers, the, the pipes are frozen. So you get cold and you stay cold. And that's also what makes you physically feel really battered. And it's hard for your core temperature to, to rise. So it's, it's, it's like a, so mentally debilitating that you kind of have to be okay with being dirty or being okay with the physical uncomfortability. When I was on the way down, I had um, really bloody feet. From blisters? From blisters, but also from just my... It's it's extremely steep, and going downhill, all my toes would be bunching together in my boot. Uh-huh. And I had... It's kind of gross. I had my toenails would... would rub against each other and the, the, the nail would just be cutting it, you know, and, you know, we were in a windstorm and we fell down a few times where we turned around at one point, we were walking through the, the Kumbu glacier, which, you know, there are crevasses and this, the people the, die up there. People die. I mean, I saw people medically evacuated. I saw people get sick, um, chest infections. There was, I tell this story quite a bit. There were 31 Australians who were um, in parallel to, to my group, which was me, my guide, Suman, and these two Marines who I met, and, and they were married. That was like their honeymoon, I think. Um, That's so hard. That's so Marine. It is, and it, it was, for me, it was like, uh, well, we can talk about them later because I'm kind of competitive, but it was, the point is, these, these Australians who were um, in parallel to us, we would see them on the trail, we'd stop, you know, we'd shoot the shit for a second, and then we'd see them later. Very tough, like, tough guys, very macho. Out of 31, only 19 finished. And that's because they would chest infections and altitude issues. And you just don't really know what's going to happen up there. And it really strips you of a lot of the pretense and a lot of the, a lot of the macho bullshit. Because you really find out in these kind of places and situations who you are. And if something happens, how you're going to react, no one ever knows. We can talk all day long. If this happens, I'll do this. If this happens, I would, you know, El Paso or wherever else, I would have done this. I would have stood up. You know, God forbid anything like that ever happens to you because we don't know what's going to happen. And when it comes to the mountains, you have to sort of, you know, be prepared, which is, what does that even mean? You have to be, you have to be so present in the moment by moment and the step by step. And that's how you stay safe. Otherwise, there's so many variables. And if you're the reason that we have so many deaths in places like this or on Mount Baldy, even, you know, here in Southern California, is because people don't take people it seriously. People die on Mount Baldy? People die on Mount Baldy every year. Really? They fall off the section called the Devil's Backbone. Oh. Because how high is Baldy? 10,200, 10,000 something. Have you climbed it? Yes. Okay. Several times. Yeah. That's what I would do. I would, I would train... I've gone back to the Himalayas uh, two more times since then, and I took it much more seriously. And I also went to more difficult areas. You like people. to climb? Um, a traditional climber. I don't use ropes and stuff. I don't really know that stuff. Like the crampons and I've used crampons before, but um, this, you know, carabiners and all this stuff, you know, th- that makes me nervous. To be honest with you, um. I have done a lot of stuff where it's uh, free climbing. I've done enough dangerous stuff that I think that, you know, now at, at where I'm at, uh, 
in many ways, I don't want to take on a life-threatening sport. It, it, it has a shelf life. Everyone gets hurt. I don't like the idea of going to rock walls. I think that's kind of stupid. When I was growing up here in Southern California, I would drag my dad around everywhere, climbing everything. He, poor guy, was such a good sport. Um, but I needed to get that out of my system. What do you mean, dragging him around, climbing everything? Well, we would go. I'd be like, let's go down this, follow this creek bed up over here. I mean. Oh, so you were like, you, you were like a kid who wanted to explore. You I wanted like... to explore, and it didn't matter that there was no trail. Right. If there was no trail, it was more appealing to me. Right. Let's go explore. There's nobody here. This is more natural. This is more wild. It, you know, looking back, if, if and when I have a kid, I think, Jesus Christ, again? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like dragging me around. And, you know, as an adult, I wanted to, I think, um, I romanticized these things. And as I was in my 20s and the, had the chance to be in my own and no supervision, oh, now I can really do these things that are, I don't know what I would call them. I got off on the fact that I would go places no other people had gone before, which is looking at that, thinking about it, even talking about it, it's it's immature. You know, it's it's it's... It's silly. Maybe I had to do that at that age so I don't do it later. I'm rationalizing maybe. But in terms of this Everest thing, I had no idea what I was getting into. I, had, I was. How did, how did you get the assignment? Because like, you're a journalist, right? You work for you write for the New York Times, BBC. What what else? What are the other big Washington ones? Washington Post, National Geographic, Bloomberg. How do you get an assignment to go? Like they bankroll you to go to the no Himalaya? Way. I had to pay for that stuff myself. You did? Yeah. Damn. Yeah. And then you and then you sell the story to and them? And then I sell the story for peanuts. Yeah. That's the way it goes. Sometimes at that point in my career, certainly. Yeah. I wanted to go. It was, it was 2013. I was at a period in my life where I had just lost a job uh, or not been picked up again. It was a writing job for a, what I thought was a big website, news outlet at the time. Yeah. Which, you know, I, I, I don't even look at that in the same way but at that moment i was very proud and i was very ambitious and i um you know i was a casualty of the market or i was not appreciated or whatever but journalism's tough journalism sucks yeah you know um it's very hard it's extremely hard as are as is writing as is as is it seems to be everything now but in, in this story, in this, you know, 2013, I had, I didn't know anything about this place, but I had wanted to go, oh, yeah, okay. I got some email, I think, about some eco trip that was, you know, go to base camp in 12 days or 14 days for $1,200 or 14, whatever it was, 2000 bucks, something like that. I thought, okay, all right, well, I can do that. And then I started talking to these people out there. There was a, a U.S. rep and set up this trip and flew there and you know, and just sort of winged it. And I, I had done a lot of solo travel and lived a bit by myself abroad. And Whereabouts? Uh, in, in Italy, in northern Italy, in uh, Parma, the city of cheese and ham. And, um, you know, I certainly rolled the dice. And I think whether it's you're taking on a, a novel for the first time and never had done it before, or you're embarking on maybe a baby or whatever it is, you have to have a measure of confidence whether or not you know what the hell you're getting into or not. And you got to say, listen, I'm going to figure it out. And for most life choices, I think whatever happens, you're probably going to 
get your way out of the, the, the you know, that situation, and you'll probably be safe. This one, you know, this is a little more extreme, you were always but it only, matched my personality. You were always only going to go to 18,000 feet. Correct. It was always to base camp. You were never thinking, like, I'm going to summit. You're not going to well, summit the, in the December thing anyway. is, The thing is, um, when you're there on the way up, and during that time period, I was thinking, well, you know, maybe I, maybe I would climb to the top. Maybe I can do that. And I think I could do that. I don't want to do that. I don't either. It's it's stupid is the real truth. Okay. It's so like, dangerous and it's so expensive and time-wise, I, I can't afford to lose a finger. I can't right. afford to lose a six months or a year of my time also at this period. And it's also miserable. Right. You know, I got what I needed out of that experience. I've been back to the mountain since. But for me, the 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 big payoff is not... I'm at the top of the mountain and look at, I'm better than you guys and I'm tougher. No, that's the immature young man that I want to shed that skin. Right now I'm into like, I'm into the food. I'm into making friends out there in the culture. I'm into actually learning about a place and not have to run to the top and, and say, nah, 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 I'm, here I am. And I've been back for the last few years and I actually have made some friends and have, you know, stay up with them and, and, and I've been going to um, like, some, like like Nepali friends. Or? Well, so I've been back to Nepal, but I've also been to to northern India to Jammu and Kashmir, which has been in the news a lot. And I went looking for snow leopards the last two years. You read Peter Matheson's book? I did read that book. I did read that book. Um, I was sort of mixed about that book because. And we're I, talking about uh, Peter Matheson's memoir. And the it, snow it's Leopard. a great book, but. When I learn more about Matheson and some, some of these, some people I've, you know, you, you, when you meet your heroes, sometimes they disappoint you. And in his respect, excuse me, for Matheson, I was kind of upset at, um, I felt like it was sometimes disingenuous, that book. And it was so navel gazing for me at times that I felt kind of. I felt it was a bit repetitive in places. And the way that he depicts this um, George Schaller, who is the, the in, a, in a way, his guru who takes him through the mountains. He, George Schaller is a guy I've, I've interviewed before, and he is very tough and dry, and he's like an old goat in a lot of ways. But I don't know. Where I've, does he live? He lives, he's German originally. I think he lives in he lives in the East Coast somewhere, I think Maryland or something. Oh, okay, so he's not like over there in the Himalayas. No, no, no. He is a guy who also has a very... Um, his politics, he's been criticized a lot for some of the things, the way he's treated China and because he's gotten so much access to Tibet. And that's a whole other conversation. But in terms of Matheson um, and relating to my book, I didn't want to read another story about a Westerner looking with that prism. Of course, I am a Westerner looking with that prism, but I didn't want the narrative to depict that same thing. I wanted something a little different. And well, that's what your novel's trying to rectify. I right. Mean, like, I don't want to um, put words in your mouth, but your novel is trying to uh, explore this idea uh, and this reality that there is quite a lot more than just, you know, Westerners and people from other places coming to climb Mount Everest uh, and stay on this trail and go to these base camps and hang out on this mountain and, you know, uh, probably try to summit it. 
there is, it's a huge place with millions and millions of people and like a rich culture and it's an endangered place. Right. And, um, that's what, that's what you're doing. Right. Well, I thought it was more interesting, you know, what's going on with these overlooked groups. I mean, you're walking past these small villages. What is life like on this mountain? That's so known for, for what, for the top, for this perilous death march do we, do, does anyone even care about that why is that so much allure there's so many other mountains that are a hundred feet less or more challenging or more beautiful but we don't care about that because we maximize the top the most the whatever the everest of you know bicycles the everest of a stack of books on your and your nightstand i mean it becomes this catch-all and like whatever's the highest that's not the most interesting part there's so many more interesting things to me about what life might be like there because in many ways it's a, you're trapped in these mountains you're not allowed to have the things first of all they've never seen the ocean you know they've never seen a city there's no cars up there there's minimal education there's minimal opportunity that to me was the canvas and then of course we have this backdrop of this romantic notion of this mountain that attracts all these flies and yeah and you have like all these people these hyper competitive mostly bros but some women too who are trying to do what i would i would say it's like a frivolous thing like they invest it with or I, you know i don't want to like rain on anybody's parade like people have their enthusiasms right people have their things maybe some people really love like summiting mountains you know they love to climb and test themselves but the danger not only to their um their lives but also what's happening to the ecosystem there um it just seems like i don't know there's something about it that fundamentally depresses me like it seems silly to me and there's some some aspect of human nature that i think it brings into focus that is ultimately not helpful. Well, it's it's very complicated because if you think about the economic landscape in a place, whether it be Everest or Aspen or what what have you, the a lot of the livelihoods do revolve around mountain culture of some kind, and it does feed a lot of livelihoods. You know, Everest in in, in um, particular. You know, these Sherpas who are the ones, the so-called ice doctors who are putting the ladders and laying the ropes and all that stuff, tremendously risky, yes. Well-paid, actually, sometimes it is quite well-paid, especially for the $2-a-day economy, which Nepal is one of the poorest countries in the world. There also is a huge honor among that culture. If you are, if you've reached the top of this mountain, there, there is... You're 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 a celebrity there, and you're a celebrity there in a different way than us because that mountain has a lot of holiness. It's considered to be very. There's a lot of religion involved with it, which is why also people there believe that the reason there's been so many tragedies over the last few years is because the mountain is being abused, the mountain is being trashed, and a lot of that. Uh, they're looking past the, what the culture should be, and taking advantage of it, and and they're in an impossible situation because how could you not if you have limited options this is the same issue that's happening in so many places across the world where they're forced by so much circumstance 
to mortgage that future and to betray maybe a value system because they're just trying to be a good parent. They're trying to feed their kids. They're trying to eat. And and you know what? And you come from the West and they want to make you feel good and you probably will feel good. And you, you know, it's so complicated that we, from here we say, well, that's wrong or this is the way it should be. And you go to these places and life is more complicated. And it, and for a for a novelist, it is an extremely rich palette. For a journalist, it's more challenging because you're not allowed to make editorializations. And you're not allowed to really deviate and give your own impression so much unless it's a travelogue. So that is the the dichotomy, and it made me want to. It made me want to explore and 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 take a risk and experiment. And that's why I wanted to do to depict a woman, because if we have a, a stand-in for me as a Western male, we've seen that before. It's not as interesting. If we even have a Sherpa who's a male, we are, we expect that. If we have a Sherpa who's a female, oh, man. I mean, it's so much more rich, and there's so much to explore there. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Well, and you know, the you talk about these Sherpas and the, the way that they achieve a kind of celebrity uh, in Nepal if they've had success climbing Everest. I think it's arguable that the, the best... Uh, alpine climbers in the world are these Sherpas. Like these people go through 100%. like no oxygen. Or the Incas or any, you know, mountain people that their lungs are physically bigger. Their yeah. hearts are bigger. It's evolutionary. Right. But I mean, they, yeah, they can perform on the mountain in ways like Westerners coming, even like these dudes who are like biohacking and hyper-trained and physically fit. Some like, of these guys really don't do well. Those, those, and I mean, what's awesome, listen, if you grew up in Santa Barbara, you might be a great surfer because you, you did it all your life. Right. It's similar to that. I mean, I've seen guys who are in flat vans, you know, marching up the mountain like it's nothing. And it's fucking amazing. It's unbelievable. I had a buddy. I went to uh, college in Colorado, and I came from the Midwest, which is flat as a board. And I remember uh, one of my buddies had grown up in Telluride, and we went on a mountain bike ride. And, like, I was pretty good athlete and he was crushing me and i was like what is i was like what is the going on he's like i have mountain legs mm-hmm. he just grew up in it i mean tell you rides at uh nine thousand feet so he grew up with at nine thousand feet that gives you an advantage <laughs> it does it does and any also you know so last year 
2018, I went to spend uh, about a month back in the Himalayas, and this time, as I previously mentioned, in Jammu and Kashmir. So this is the border region between India and Pakistan. Which is like... Still the Himalayas. It's a crisis point, though, like politically... Crisis point, another very complicated region because it's a huge, huge area, and not everywhere is, I, you know, insurgents, and it's not like that. It's like saying when someone says, oh, you're going to the U.S., there was just a shooting in El Paso. Well, okay, that's true. We do have a serious issue with guns. But you staying at the Regency or you going to <laughs> hike the Pacific Coast Trail or whatever, yeah. you're going to probably be okay. Right. You know, it's a vast area. Sure. But um, anyhow, going there this last year, you know, the Karakoram is a part of the Himalaya Range. And I, I, I sort of just lost track of what I was saying before. But the point is th this thing is just... You know, this, this place is, it hooks you. I was going to totally say, you, you, you clearly love it. I love it. And then, so last year when I was, I, I put up camera traps looking for snow leopards. Another assignment that I twisted the arm of people to say, let me go do that. Okay. You know, I'm paying my own way again. So it's very little um, investment on a part of an editor. So putting up camera traps at 16,000 feet, you know, no trails on this stuff. Going up mountains, I went with the same guy who took the BBC Planet Earth team to go find leopards. I mean, this is this is for me as a kid or me as an adult. I'm excited. I'm excited. This is this is this is a peak experience. Where does this come from? You grew Where up does in this come from? You come. You grew up in Southern California, so it's well, not like we you have we have mountains and we have we have you know we have we do have beautiful nature. It's listen, you know. You embark on a quest in your life, and some way or another, you manage to start building like Lego blocks, and and you keep pushing and you keep doing. And what I was trying to explain was that you know last year to this year, my performance out there, big improvement. Okay. And I have taken it a lot more seriously in terms of my training and trying to really know as best I can to mimic the conditions. You can't do everything, but, you know, hiking Baldy, hiking, you know, these peaks around here. How far away is Baldy from L.A.? Well, 45 minutes east. Really? Yeah, it's pretty close. I should go do that. You should go do that. I mean, it's the thing is, I, it's also, you know, trying to be out there enough. Listen, these, are, these, are, these are like hard places. You don't just show up, you know. You got to be outdoors a lot to be comfortable because if you have no Wi-Fi, no bathroom you, you know you, you there are people who freak out or do you just like you squat in the snow you, you maybe you don't squat in the snow but you're definitely not flushing if you're even using a bathroom or a toilet right and and like that's it's not to go to to, to be in hardship that's not an appeal you go because you might be able to see a, a snow leopard did you see one I, I fucking saw one did you really it took two years okay it took two years to visually see it. I had and it on my cameras. Just so people listening understand, like snow leopards are notorious for being elusive and hard to spot. They're very hard to spot. You're not yeah. supposed to see them. I'll tell you what I did see the two years in a row was wolves. Really? I saw wolves what very kind, close what's up. The, what's, the, like, what's the species it's variation? A, it's a Tibetan wolf. Uh -huh. It's a smaller wolf. They're kind of cute, right? They actually look kind of mangy. Oh, really? They're, this, it's a tough environment. Maybe it's the Tibetan fox I'm thinking of. That one is so beautiful. It doesn't even look real. It's adorable. They have this very round face. It yeah. looks like a Disney character. Right. Listen, I'm telling you, these places, you find a way to get to them. They hook you. And it's, it's, 
you go while you can. You know, you try to do it in a safe way. You try to do in a way that makes sense financially or professionally. I am, I am, don't have some of these obligations that other people have. Yeah, you can go. You know, I can go. I still have to make my 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 nut every month and pay the bills. But I, if I go to some place, I usually sell a story first. I have a couple other potentials, and I come back and I sell two or three out of it. So I, it makes sense financially for me, but it's hard time-wise and investment-wise. Well, yeah. It's I hard mean, in the body, too. Yeah, and but I imagine being over there is fairly cheap. Like, you don't have to spend a ton of money to stay there, right? Well, you know, it, it certainly adds up, and, um, you know, it, it, sometimes it is expensive. Sometimes it's really expensive because having the right gear, having the right clothes. Right. And then sometimes also I, I splurge on my flights. Where I sometimes upgrade. Yeah. Air China, you can upgrade on the flight for cash. Can you really? You really can. You're like, I just want to fucking lie down and just sleep. That's so important. Right. It's so important if you sleep on the plane and you get there and you're sharper, you don't have as bad of a of a jet lag. No, I'm with you on that. I'm with you. So let's talk about this snow leopard. Yeah. Two years. Yeah. I can show you on my phone. Oh man! So you're setting up cameras in the in the wild at like yeah. sixteen thousand. Yeah, fifteen, sixteen thousand feet. You would basically, I would go every day with these these guys who would think of it like this: we have mountain lions in the mountains around here. So if you live in Azusa or Glendale or whatever, maybe you're on some trails and you, maybe you've seen some lions. Maybe you've seen some scat or some uh, what's called pug marks because they they let their hind legs scrape the ground. These are indicators of the animal. Or you see a, a deer kill. You keep going and frequenting these locations, you may see a lion. You may not. But if you set up a camera there and put it on a kill, good chance you're going to see a lion. So it's that kind of habitual behavior. And if you go with locals and people who it's their backyard, you know, there's no guarantees for wildlife. But there can be good chances. And if you're willing to, you know, hike your, your butt up to, to some peak and walk around on some ridge line and not look backwards and keep yourself about you and not get hurt. If you don't get hurt, no one can really tell you you're an idiot. If you get hurt, you're an idiot. That's the litmus that, test. That's the test. <laughs> it's, it really is. Whatever you do as an adult, yeah. if you fuck up, they were right. Yeah. If you don't, you know what? They were Even wrong. Even if it didn't you know, make me make my dream come true, I'm, I'm, at, I'm at neutral. You know, so you caught the lion on camera. Is what you're so, saying. so the leopard. So okay, or the we, leopard. I'm sorry. We got it. I got the first images. I got. We found a. Uh, this is last year, uh, a a cow, a dead cow, and I put up cameras there at about like four fifteen p.m. And are they nocturnal? They are crepuscular, so uh, dawn and and uh, dawn and dusk. But they are very much, you know, uh, they sleep almost all day. Yeah, but um, when I first got, we found a, a kill and we set up these cameras around it, and there was a fox, a red fox, same red fox as you might see in like London. Hmm. It's an amazing species that is so well adapted to everything. Anyway, a red fox was on the kill five minutes after I left because you can see on the timestamp on the camera. That night, a very scared and skittish wolf was on the kill, and on my cameras. Saw the leopard come, scare off the wolf, and the leopard was on the kill. Wow. You got good pictures? You know, I, well, I, I'm a writer. 
do I really know how to take good pictures? <laughs> Come on, dude. I mean, some of them are <laughs> social media wise pretty good. Yeah. Some of these have been published in, you know, Bloomberg and the Washington Post or whatever. The thing is, my pictures versus a professional Like the guys who were doing uh, which, whatever. The, National Geographic yeah, stuff? Yeah, Planet Earth or whatever. So there was a guy there who was shooting a National Geographic special, and his pictures versus my pictures are night and day, you know? Also, at, at nighttime, especially, there is a guy named Steve Winter, who is a very famous Nat Geo photographer. He has come up with um, some of these uh, camera traps. I'm calling really bullshit nice. on that last name, by the way. Steve Winter? Yeah. He's you look him up. He's <laughs> it's got to be a pen name or something, right? It's though. it's too perfect. Yeah, you know it'd be like Dan Lion's Man or something. <laughs> but this guy has a basically it's a backlight because if you have the backlight when they come, you're not going to see the glare on the eyes, and it's a big difference. Yeah. But this last year, um, I finally saw a leopard visual with my two eyes, not on a camera. And again, this was. You know, unexpected. We we were following some injured a yak that was attacked by a leopard. The yak had a huge gash mark here. We followed a blood trail. We sat on some ridge, scanning. Thirty minutes, forty minutes, an hour, getting really cold. I start talking, start making jokes, and started. You know, I'm not. We're not saying anything. Let's go have dinner. Let's get out of here. And this guy named Stunzen, who. Uh, is the son of Norbu, who's the the really he's the guide and he's the, the the leopard tracker. He's like really knows wildlife with an eye. It's unbelievable. Anyway, stands and looks up and he's like leopard, 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 and we you know freak out and look in the binoculars and the scopes, and it's twilight and there's this leopard on top of a ridge looking down on us and you can see the the yak and, and our group and not it seems like like not even real and regal and beautiful and looks large maybe he only weighs 80 pounds you know but looks it looks solid and and almost robotic too almost like not real and it was sort of an emotional moment to be honest with you because you spend so much time looking for these things and even if i get them on video or a camera it's different than being there. Yeah. It's like know? taking a picture of the moon. You take, you look at the photo and you're like, well, that doesn't measure up unless you have the right camera. I it's, guess. Like it's, it's, it's like, it's real. It actually exists and it's special. It's well, special. I remember watching, uh, on one of those planet earths, I think where they're tracking a snow leopard and they get one and there's a long shot like across a, you know, a ravine basically. It's like from one side of a like from one mountain wall to another mm -hmm. mountain wall is essentially the shot. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. And what struck me is that even if the leopard is there and it's relatively close, you might not see it. It's hard to see. So here's something about Matheson that goes back to the, the leopard, some leopard book you alluded to. He has a good comment. This, he says, you know, I'm, I'm not paraphrasing. He says that you don't have to see it to, but to be there is enough or to be around it is enough. And, I, I I use that as a that's a rationalization, and especially as a, as a writer, you want you know you want to have that reveal whether it's an article or a a book, you're after this quest. It's a quest book, and you don't find the the amulet, the ark, the whatever. You want to have that. And when I first went there, I was thinking to myself, you know what, they're probably looking at me right now. You know, I probably they probably see me. It's it's good enough. I'm here. After a while, you start to feel like 
you, you feel like upset. You want to see it. You need to get that cathartic, you know, you need to reach the end of your quest. And seeing the leopard, I was like, oh, my God. You really feel like you put a lot into it because I saw everything but the leopard. Did you get closure? Like, what did you feel when you once you saw the leopard? Were you like, okay, well, I'm done? I'll tell you, my people close to me said, "Have you had enough? Do you are you going to go back?" And I, the first thing I said was, "You know, what? I don't. I think I have had enough for him now. But it's almost been nine months, and now I'm thinking about going back. My my next trip. And and it's funny because when I'm there, I think to myself because I, I enjoy I enjoy sleeping in a bed. I enjoy splurging and being in a hotel all these things it's not like i'm it's not fun being in pain right you know it's not fun you do it for you know the the small moments there you do it for sometimes even looking back you you things that are that were difficult or more fun writing a book for instance i mean we don't write a book because we're sitting there in the room and it's it's fun to edit and it's fun to be rejected or have self-doubt or think jesus christ how am i going to really do this it's fun that moments like this where we can talk about it and we can reflect on it where we actually gain something from it maybe some understanding of ourselves or the world or whatever and then we propel that forward and, and use it yeah no it's funny how it like you know in hindsight you it can be easy to romanticize things that at the time were really difficult um, and there's something to be said for like, what is like, what's the old adage? Like I, I like having written, you know, as opposed totally. to writing. <laughs> totally. Maybe that's a, a genetic thing where as for part of our evolution, we have had to use memory in a way that if we internalized every traumatic moment and still experienced it and really still were there, how do you, how do you live? How do you, how do you go about daily life? No, you got to weed it out. You know, your, your system, your, your brain has to sift through these things. You can't carry it all. Um, but I am also struck by how even the, the difficult things, like things that were challenging or uncomfortable or that tested you, um, like I'm not talking about awful, like trauma, but I'm talking about like just tough stuff, you know, where you're out and it's 30 below or you're, um, you know, you're dealing with some injury and you push through or whatever it is. That stuff often in the rearview mirror is the stuff that sticks the most and that you have the most like reverence for and appreciation for. I, I think so too. I but I think that I'm in hindsight. It's I've said a lot of things that were character forming, or I think to myself, "Well, that taught me this, and now I'm this, and now I'm sort of of a mind to think, you know, would I want my kids to go through some of the things I've went through? No." Right. Maybe they will be softer. Maybe, but maybe that's the better way to be. Maybe it's better to not carry so much stuff around. Maybe you know, I have managed to forge a career as a writer. But would I be more happy, or maybe more normal, or whatever, if I was had a, a nine to five? I mean, sure, I wouldn't go to Kashmir and see leopards, but maybe you know, that's outlier stuff. That is stuff that I've sort of. I, I I'm not in. I'm very aware that that's not normal, but I'm thinking to myself, you know, there, that there could have been different ways. And is this the best way? I mean, it is where I am. I think everybody feels that way. Like we all like sort of mourn the lives we didn't lead, but you can't do it all. You got to make I think choices for, for artists. I think it's a very, very internalized thing. And I don't know if a lot of people talk about it. And I, I certainly think a lot of people, um, 
I think a lot of artists do sort of romanticize. Yeah, it's really hard, and I know I don't get paid good, but you know I do it because I love the word. I mean, thinking like, wait a second, what what really makes you do something? It's a, it's it's interesting that you bring this up because I was just having a conversation before you came over with a, a pal of mine about this, and it's something I've said before, probably on this show, but certainly to myself and. Uh, I think most people listening have probably come across it, but it's worth repeating is that having whatever project you're working on, if we're talking about writers, you know, whatever creative um, project or professional ambition uh, or personal ambition that you're pursuing, having a clear understanding of why you're doing it is really important, especially if you're going to undertake something that requires a lot of you, um, particularly when it comes to like stamina, you know, something that's going to like, you have to invest in writing a book for years of your life. Often, if you don't know why you're doing it, you might finish the book, but I doubt it will be as good as it otherwise would have been. And if you aren't finishing, maybe you're not clear on why. And I'm saying that to myself as much as I'm saying it to Mm -hmm. the audience or to you. I think the mechanics of the actual business are just as interesting as the mechanics on the page and the sentence structure, because how do you find a way when people say, yeah, I spent four years, six years, eight years. I think to myself, how the, how did that even happen? How do you spend so long on something? And then meanwhile, how are you financially solvent? Yeah. And that's a big one because how do you grow your craft and yet still pay the bills while you're developing and getting good? Cause it takes forever. I feel like I'm sort of, it's taking me so long to get here. I thought I was good a long time ago. I know now I wasn't. You know, I thought I was good. And I was, I needed to, to, I think, be, when I was 16, I wrote a screenplay. I thought I was going to drop out of school. I got very close to optioning it. It's a good thing I didn't option it. That would have been a fuck up. I would have burned out so fast. I needed to fail there. I needed to go, not go to college immediately and not get into colleges and, and make so many mistakes to see who I really am and then to be able to use that, and I'm not like, again, I'm not saying the, the, the failure is the way to do it, but I think when people come out of school and they go immediately, I'm a writer now, it's important to live a life. It's important to have experiences that are very varied. And a lot of people who have been in MFA programs or what have you, I mean, I, I, I think that you, you're, you, they don't have a rapport with people from multiple classes and multiple experiences, which are so important to be able to inhabit those in a convincing way. Right. Well, yeah, if you're going to write about it, I mean, you, like I think about trying to write, for example, like a, a young girl who tries to defy the social order, um, in the Himalayas and, uh, be a Sherpa, you know, the way that you've depicted in your book. And, uh, I don't know how you would even begin to attempt that unless you'd been there. Well, even listen, I also thought, what can I do as a first novel? I wanted to write this as nonfiction. I actually wrote a nonfiction book, full book. Oh, really? Okay. And I was told by agents, and I was very eager, and I was so excited and put a lot of time into this while still being a full-time journalist, which is, you know, uh, mentally, that's challenging. Yeah. It's, it's tiring. Yeah. You, you only have so much juice every day. Man. You, it's, but again, you, you want it, you have to try because you'll never know. But I wrote it as a nonfiction book first and I was, you know, it was my experience. Was it interesting? 
Probably. Was it a good book? It might have been a good book, but the problem with it is no one dies in the book. And no one, we don't go to the summit. So from a marketing and sales perspective, the reader might feel like it wasn't high stakes enough. That's right. Stakes. So I took that and, and gestated that and, and, and felt it. And I went to think, okay, how do I tell a story in this world, which fascinates me so much and I think will fascinate readers. And I decided to really take a gamble. And I thought, well, this, this is in a way a bad choice because in our knee jerk reaction moment we're in right now, but this was a couple years ago. And I, I wasn't even thinking that way because that would inhibit me too much. And I really thought that this is the character I, I wanted to inhabit. And this is a viewpoint I wanted to, to take, you know, for better or worse. And of course I took liberties. Of course, that's what a writer does. You base certain things on reality, but you have to be able to, to birth something. So for a guy who has worked as a journalist primarily throughout his career, you suddenly uh, embark on writing fiction, get through it, finish the book, publish the book, you know, with some perspective now looking back, do you uh, feel like, you know, writing fiction and sort of using a different part of your brain maybe, or different tools strengthened you as a journalist? Totally. Like, what did you learn from that like process? So it's, it's been a strange reaction or a reception. A lot of journalists say, well, why did you write a fiction? As if that's somehow cheating or not but the, as... But don't a lot of journalists like, secretly harbor ambitions to I think they do. I think they do. Or maybe not so secretly. I think they do. And I think that because so few journalists write fiction, because if you're doing a story, God, you, you have to be so... It's, it, makes a, it causes a lot of anxiety because you have to get someone else's life right. Yeah. Multiple people in one story, even if it's something small everything you know and i think journalists are very wed to this so-called truth with the capital t and and i think it inhibits a lot of um it inhibits an outlook on the world it's very it's either this or this if you're this group this is your narrative and i think that that's quite stifling and fiction i think you can see the world maybe for what it really is i don't have a solution to every problem I don't need to make this character is the bad guy of the story. This is the good guy. There is motivations that every bad guy is the hero of their own story. You know, everyone has, we do things because we're put in situations where there is no better answer and I have to choose one of the two and according to the law or according to culture or whatever, that's wrong. And I think that, you know, it helps my journalism, but editors don't want to see my take they want it to just be story of x or whatever and and highlight that so uh did you ever think about abandoning the project after the nonfiction version was uh didn't turn out well um i 2016 i uh i tore my acl where uh basketball court and oh, okay like not, a, not like up. No, on no, no, not over there. Thank God. <laughs> I was chasing a snow leopard at 18,000 yeah, feet. Yeah, I was uh, trying to be Indiana Jones and uh, right. whatever. Um, that was a really traumatic, horrible experience. You play basketball a lot? I, I sure did. Yeah. You know, now I'm more careful. 
you know, fit all. I, oh, you know what? I wanted to talk about that for a second. Sure. Uh, and so just like, I don't mean to interject, but before I forget, you talked about having to really be a present in order to avoid injury. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's an undervalued, um, I think it's undervalued, not just in the context of like high alpine climbing, but life in general. Like, Wait, sorry, I'm, I'm looking down on my yeah, phone. Yeah, what? but that's it, right? Like avoiding accidents, car accidents. How about just looking at someone in the eye looking, you know, or smiling at someone with, for no intention, just to you, you catch eye contact and not yeah. to feel inhibited where I have to look down on my phone. Like when you, like when I'm walking and I, uh, you never do that where you're like walking and you like stub your toe on like a curb or a, you know, piece of the sidewalk that's elevated or whatever it is. And you're like, oh, and you trip. No, and you I, almost... I don't do that. Cause I'm on the ridgeline looking for leopards. No, <laughs> right. but of course your system is finely tuned. You right. have seen a snow leopard, right. you know, Sorry. a sidewalk is not going to trip you up, but I just notice it. And I, I say to myself, because this is the way that I think I'm like, wow, if I ever get to an advanced age, you know, how old people are always falling, they break their hip or something. And. I was like, well, you get, the reason that happens is, well, part of it is physical deterioration, but any human being, whatever age, when that is happening, it's because you're not, not most likely because you're not tuned in. Yeah. So my mom just broke her foot because she was walking down the stairs and was looking at her phone and I'm sorry, I'm not trying to embarrass her. I know she is embarrassed about it, but it was a totally unavoidable or totally avoidable thing. Right. It's just because you're not paying attention Yeah. And how many accidents or something we see. Those are unforced errors. Right. So if you want to avoid uh, the point I'm trying to make, you want to avoid injury. Pay attention. Pay attention. <laughs> I feel like the most obvious thing ever. So you were raised in Southern California. What yeah. part? I was raised in West LA. West LA. It's very general. Yeah. Like what, Santa Monica? No, I was, I was raised first in Hollywood and then we moved to Beverly Hills. Okay. Yeah. How was that? Like Beverly Hills High well, kind of thing? Well, I, I mean, it is... Uh, so my parents are both immigrants. From? My mom was born in Israel. And my father was born in Romania. Okay. Both of them, well, my father had to escape to come to the U.S. And my mom's family were also refugees. So growing up in L.A. for me was very much feeling like an outsider. And a lot of... Um, so you're first generation. First generation. Um, a lot of these things are subsurface. Now I'm at a point in my life where I don't, I can compartmentalize things, but as a kid, when you're growing up raised by people with accents, um, not so much my mom, but my father and my grandparents, you know, and a lot of normal stuff that kids do with their dad, we didn't do, you know, like what play sports, but he, um, he was chasing you around Creek beds. And he stuff. was doing that, but you know, I, I, um, there's there's shame wrapped up into it. There's feelings of being different, which feeds creativity in a strange way because you're a, you have an outside perspective or you feel other. But um, I don't know. I was very I was I had a lot of we had a lot of issues growing up. You know. You have siblings. I have one sister who's much more well adjusted than I am. Oh really? Yeah, she sure is. Good for her. Good for her is right. I mean, <laughs> she's well, got a stable job. She's not chasing. She does. She's she not does. chasing endangered species no, around the planet. She's smarter. She's smarter than me in that respect. You know, both my parents were writers or are writers. Oh, interesting. And what kind? Uh, both novelists and TV. No shit. Film. So, which means high highs and low lows. Right. 
And what did they, did they do? Anything we would know about? Well, you sure, damn sure should know about it, Mister. <laughs> um, well, my my father has a Wikipedia page. So. <laughs> so my father has written several uh, bestsellers in English. He also had a career in Romania, where he was a communist country. He was one of the preeminent writers, novelists of um, his era. He had to escape in 1973. Uh, there, John Cheever helped him come to the U.S., who was a big writer at one point. And, sure. Um, he went to the University of Iowa, where he was... Um, he went to the workshop? He went to the workshop, my father, and was had what was a fellow or something of that nature, and um, came finally got to the U.S. after bouncing around to England and Australia and had to learn to write in, in a new language, which is, you know, Nabokov and a couple of others. It's extremely difficult right. and has had bestsellers in, in English. One of them was called Almost Adam, which uh, came out already in, like, 96. But that was about an American paleontologist who goes to East Africa, discovers a living hominid, and as a scientist, do you, you know, do I expose this these animals to the animals? Do you expose these people to the world, or do I protect them? And it it was a bestseller in the Times bestseller list. He uh, has written extensively, um, mining our family history. Um, my grandparents on my mom's side uh, met in a concentration camp and uh, escaped. That's and, quite a place to meet. Yes, it is. And he wrote about it in a book for St. Martin's Press. It was called The Oasis, which Ellie Wiesel and Salman Rushdie, I believe, also endorsed at the time. Um, he has a new book. I'm really, uh, I'm, very, I'm proud of my father. Yeah. He's my favorite author. Yeah. He's my favorite author. And he um, he has given me so much uh, respect for words, respect for the craft. And he he's, he's you know, I think the best teacher it's not someone who just gives you an A for showing up. He kept me honest, and he is not afraid or has not been afraid to tell me when I've made mistakes. We're working on something right now. After I'm here, I'm going to go to see him because we're editing something. Oh, really? You know, A book? Uh, something else. Uh, what it's, is it? It's a screenplay. Oh. Um, actually based on one of his books. So, Interesting. Yeah, that I adapted. And... Um, he actually had, uh, I'll tell you the last thing and I'll stop plugging away and I'll mention my mom <laughs> really quick. Um, but there's a, he wrote a book in, called Amazon Beaming. And it was about, it's a true story. A National Geographic explorer who goes to South America, meets an uncontacted Indian tribe, and gets kidnapped by them, has to escape, and then finds the source of the Amazon River. I mean, so this is me growing up hearing these kind of stories, sometimes traveling with them. You know, on research trips. Did he, yeah, where, did he take you places? Took me places. Like where? The Amazon. You know, okay. So now, so now it's making, so more, making sense. more sense. making more sense that these things were less scary to me. I mean, certainly you go in with your parents and the measure of luxury, it's, it's also exciting. But as I grew up, I had a taste for this stuff. And I thought, you know, you, you, you want to you get more. Yeah. And my mom wrote a lot of TV movies with my dad and several... Um, you know, teleplays and, you know, so growing up with them, it, it, it was, there was respect for this stuff, but there was also, it, it's certain disdain for it because I could see from them the business and how utterly merciless yeah. and so arbitrary it was. It wasn't romanticized. It wasn't because you still have to make it work, mm -hmm. you know, and 
that's why you know I am maybe critical in a way, and I'm, I'm I just think I'm real. I'm, I feel very real about it, and it might be my first book, but I've been writing professionally for almost ten years now as a journalist. And growing up, seeing my parents do it, I mean, they told me it's not that they didn't encourage me, but they said, you don't have to do this. You can do anything else. And I think if my parents were something else, I probably would have pursued something else. Part of my personality with the book, with whatever, has been a bit rebellious. And if someone says, I can't do it, I try to, to find a way to do it, for better or worse. It's not that I wrote a book with a female character to say, nah, 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 like I am a male, but I can still do this. No, I wanted to do it because I thought it was so challenging and so outside of what's me that that was exciting and the character that I wanted to create. Well, it's also the most interest. It was the most interesting creative choice to I th- you. I think so. I think so. And the, the fact is, what's c- the time we're living in right now is when Brett Easton Ellis came on this show and he was talking about some of the issue he takes with a degree of censorship is a is a is a big word. And I don't want to use that word. But there is a sense of who is allowed to tell certain stories or who is allowed to act. Or There's a lot of stuff rolled up into this. Like policing. of like, like That's the part of, uh, I think, his politics where I find some agreement is like I get uneasy around the policing of creativity. And, you know, if policing is the right word. Well, but th- it's like who gets to be that? Who gets that role? I think the role of the writer is to be a voice of reason in an unreasonable world is to shine a mirror back of what's going on. But I think that in in my instance with this book right now, which is, I find quite ironic and quite um, challenging at times is people think that they know my story or that they say, well, here's a privileged white male. You know, I wish I was more privileged, I wish I was more white, is the real truth. Because depending on... You look pretty white. Well, I'm, I'm a Jew. Yeah. I'm forever being in the shadows. I'm forever um, normalizing myself or being around people who... Uh, let me tell you, it's, uh, it's, it's heavy. It's heavy, and it's not just an academic thing. It's very, very close to my family, you know, people being murdered, not, you know, to, a generation ago. Yeah. To, to be raised by that and to, to feel that. That's a psychic burden. It's not only a psychic burden, it makes it that it's not, it's not something to use as a card. It's something that I don't like to talk about because it trivializes it. Not everyone needs to know the pain. Not everyone needs to know all these deep things, and we all have them, no matter what color, whatever. But right now in this moment, it is almost like there's us versus them, and every group seems to have to collectivize uh, a narrative where it's it's like being in middle school and people don't want to sit at each other's table. It's, it's getting weird, and it's not helpful. And at least from my experience, I mean... My family, whatever way you want to cut it on both sides, we've never we've been the oppressed, not the oppressor. So when people say that to me that they, well, you haven't had to dealt with anything, and what do you know about this? 
wait a second, what do you know about me? It really shouldn't matter at all who I am. The book should stand up. Does it work or not? But if we want to have that conversation, you know, I think it's, we can have that. And, and I'll tell you things that will blow you away, you know, and I don't need to do that to, to prove it. I don't need to go on social media and make, be a warrior. Yeah. These are things that you internalize that you come out in other ways, in more meaningful ways, not to prove something. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, maybe the larger point is that everybody's care. Like, you know, shit happens to everybody. No one's as simple as they might seem to you when you're evaluating them on social media or just, well, that's why I was saying, wouldn't it be better if it, if it, if it was, I mean, we wouldn't have to internalize so much stuff. I, I, I don't think my kids will the same way as I have. Yeah. There'll be a generation removed. They'll be more assimilated because right. that's the big difference between also American Jews. And I think Jews who are recent immigrants is the assimilation. Right. You know, well, and you know, you, you, uh, you know, your family history and your personal history embodies a lot of human experience, you know, like there's been quite a, like your parents have traveled a long way right. in their lifetimes from being immigrants on the run in exile or whatever mm -hmm. to getting to, um, you know, being uh, creative professionals in Beverly Hills. Yeah doing well in a very tough business like that South Beverly Hills, but still, yeah, but still, but still the point I'm trying to make. And I have, no, it's can, amazing. What other country can this happen? Canada, maybe the UK. Right. But it, it doesn't happen very often. No, it, it does happen. It does happen, but it doesn't happen very often. And I relate to it just cause, um, my dad was the first person in his family to go to college mm -hmm. and he did really well. Mm -hmm. Um, but I also remember going down to see my, I mean, I grew up in a, uh, suburban Milwaukee in a aluminum siding house. Like I grew up very middle class, comfortable but middle class. I remember going down to Louisiana to see my grandparents, and they would be like very lower middle class. And I saw a lot of indigence, mm -hmm. you know. And I was I don't know. Like I just, it's not the same, but it is kind of the same. Just covering a lot of different like layers of human experience and having some access to it all, and then trying to like trying to process it and make some sense of it. Um, it. For me, it can be like a little bit head spinny sometimes like to know like, um, who am I? Who am I? <laughs> yeah. You know? So before I let you go, I'm interested to know if like the spiritual juju mm -hmm. of that part of the world over in the Himalayas and Nepal and India, is that any part of the allure for you or did you pick it up while you were there? I mean, I certainly try to imbue it in, in the in the book. Yeah. I read a lot of um, important texts. I know that you have some leanings towards Buddhism. Yeah. Um, I would. I tried to think so much of that the Buddhist mindset about the impermanence of life, and about maybe a detachment from from death in a way where it's so part of life. It's it's. I tried to 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 really make that come about in in the the mentality of the character and just touch on how did I build this character you know it wasn't like one person I met it wasn't like that but I thought about if I had never gone past third grade or second grade I have um my father is is a sherpa and I I am the firstborn of my family I I am not married in a, at an age where I should be married I have never seen a city I 
You know, it's, there's so many things I try to, to think in that kind of mindset. I would listen to uh, Radio Kantapur, which is a city in Nepal, and it had a 24-hour, you know, news and, and music. I tried to really be there as much as I could. And I thought, like, the Buddhist way of looking at the world appealed to me. And I'm not Buddhist, but that terms of, you know, when you're up in those mountains, there are moments that no matter what religion you are, you do feel spiritual and you do feel small and part of something that's connected and, and complicated and and you're just a speck on the side of this mountain and this rock under you has been here for 300,000 years and will be here for another 200,000 and you're going to be gone in a blink of a an infinitesimal blink in the, the greater cosmic story. Right. How could you not feel these things? And how could it not course through you seeing sunrises with a pink sunrise with a mountain behind it or yeah. in front of it? It's The mountains are great. They, they're so evocative. Yeah. They're so exciting. Yeah. Unless you're overnight on one. Yeah. But when you wake up in the morning with a tea or something, you know, that yeah. you can appreciate it. I, yeah. I have a lot of love for it. I got, I got the bug when I was in college and I, it's never left me. Like I still hike. Um, and like, I was talking to my wife and I was like, you know, if we ever did leave Los Angeles, like I just got to leave, I got to live somewhere where there's a mountain. I've had a mountain to climb, like in some form since mm -hmm. I was 18 years it's great, old. It's a great metaphor. Yeah. I got it. Mean, if I didn't have one, I think I would be upset. Um, did you, did the Buddhist culture of, uh, Nepal and, um, you know, the Himalayas, did that factor into your decision to use first person present tense in the book? I think first person uh, as a reader, I really, if I like the character, I really like first person because it's, I think first person in a nov the novel format in general, there is no other medium that allows you to think that person's thoughts. And that that was a serious turn on for me. What about, what about writing uh, a female character? Did you have like females in your life who were vetting it to try to make sure you were a hundred percent, hundred percent. My mom, my sister, my girlfriend. What does your sister do? Is she like an accountant? Did she do no, something? No, she's an agent. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. She's a, not a talent agent. She's a digital agent, which... She represent podcasters? <laughs> well, she might know a thing or two. Did she blow up my career? Let's do this. I told you my, 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 my number, buddy. <laughs> um, well, I congratulate you on it. Thank and you. you're working on, um, like right now, a screenplay. Well, you know, it's not something I really broadcast, but um, I... Um, still full-time writing i have writing journalism i have a couple other things that i've written that are long form that are in various places got a really big magazine story for los angeles magazine it's that's actually about growing up in la and a lot of stuff that well, once you read it you're probably gonna want me back on the show so i have to what? save some stuff you can't you can't divulge here it's, it's too much the last few minutes give me a little taste some of the things I, I touched on in terms of um, identity and not quite fitting in and passing in different groups and the feeling so lost and feeling so not sure who you are that uh, you're really seeking acceptance, maybe in the wrong places. Very ambiguous. Yeah. But... Just a direction my life could have gone and, and did go for quite some time, and it'll be exciting. Interesting. Yeah. Drugs? Of course. I mean, there's it's a sub. 
that's a subhead of <laughs> you know and that's coming out in los angeles magazine it's supposed to be coming out in november maybe it's december but uh something i actually wrote for the new york times magazine and got killed and we had to spend time rejections man i mean it's uh you have to be able to roll with those quick and figure out how to how to make it work you know it's yeah. i wish that's what i learned in school where'd you go been, to school i you said you you didn't go to college right after high right, school i didn't get in i didn't get, get into any colleges <clears throat> you're a all. shitty student in high school i thought i was a good student <laughs> <laughs> my mom didn't even come to my graduation that's where i was at why why? I mean, I, again, I mean, were you a I was, Were you a tough kid? I guess I was. It seems so stupid and petty now, but I wasn't ready. I wasn't. I wasn't mature enough yeah. for for this stuff. I had to. I had to just don't touch the stove. Psst, yeah. I, I had to touch the damn stove. I was know? kind of that way too. God, what's? But I end, I ended up going. I went to to Santa Monica College, and then I went to Pitzer College, and then I went to. By the way, like Pitzer. They wouldn't even let me in now. It was not like the admission scandal, but they they said to me, if you get a 3.0 for, for a year, we'll let you in. And then I spent five years doing a lot of bad – I worked at a bank. I worked at a restaurant. I worked at, you know, temping. And I worked at, like, lots of humbling experiences that sucked. But anyway um, – But good but – good, uh what is character I mean, forming character forming some material knowing maybe. what you don't want to do there you go knowing what you don't want to do that's right but when i was 25 i got into um syracuse for their journalism program no school it was the only school who accepted me so i was like you know i'm going it was a one-year program and i at least at that point like i would already started to change and started to I took out loans and all this stuff and to, to to go and i really wanted to move my life in a different direction and i wasn't it wasn't in a good place I was willing to do anything, you know, really to to right the ship. And that experience was good for me in a lot of ways. I wish, as I said earlier, that it taught more about the more pragmatic approach to the business of creativity. Yeah. Because out of that class, supposedly the best journalism school in the country, me and one or two other people are, are working journalists. I have like two or 300 kids. That doesn't surprise me. That's that's sad, man. I mean, it that's, is, but it doesn't. I mean, based on the market conditions, but and, that school is supposedly a powerhouse. Wow, I mean, this this business, it 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 really it it gets you. It's it's a it's a tough one. It's a tough one. That's why I wanted to do a book. That's why I wanted to do bigger things because it's it's also more exciting. And it's it's I keep using the word exciting, and I never even use that word. But I mean that it's something different, and I think new experience. Is very important for a creative person because if you're doing, you're coming up against the opposition of challenging market, especially as a freelancer, you're going up against staff people. You better come with good ideas and good material and be easy to work with and be able to file that invoice on time and then keep them honest but not push too hard so they keep taking your pitches. Wow. And these, these are the kind of tight ropes that they don't teach you. Yeah. They need more practical instruction. I, I agree. Like I had, I went to USC and got my uh, MFA and they sort of prided themselves on being more nuts and bolts, but you can never have too much of that. And, uh, I think there are certain elements of the business. I'm imagining it's the same in journalism that, uh, there's some mysteriousness to it. So it can be hard to teach, you know, how do you tell somebody how to navigate all this stuff and get an agent and find the right publisher and time it right? I mean, 
there, there are some practical things you can do, but right. then some of it, the cards sort of have to fall your way. Your product better be very good. That's right. Number one. Yeah. Well, um, you got your book in print. You like my product? You got, you got a good product here. It's a quality product. It's also a pretty nice actual book. I mean, in terms of the cover, it's hardcover. It looks pretty. Yeah. These things are important. Let's not forget. I mean, we do all judge these books by their cover. To some extent, yeah. We judge by everything as much as we might say we don't. And, you know, there's good and bad to have a small publisher. And uh, You judging my podcast by its logo? You. I, I'm... I'm, I'm <laughs> I'm enamored to be here on a Saturday morning. Well, hey, it's great to, to uh, meet you. Congratulations and best of luck on everything that you have going. Thanks. Thanks for having me. All right, folks, that is Adam Papescu, and his debut novel is called Nima. It's available from Unnamed Press. You can find him on the uh, internet at adampapescu.com. You can find him on Twitter. His handle there is at Adam Papescu. He's got an Instagram at Adam Papesco. He's got a Facebook. He's got a, you know, he's got it all. Check it out. The book once again is called Nima. Go get your copy. Thank you to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music there at the top, uh, in between monologue and interview. Don't forget, uh, if you want to tip your server, you can do that at patreon.com slash other pod. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Tell me a story. Say hello. And uh, don't forget about the Other People app. This program has its own official app, but the Other People with Brad Listy app is free. It's available where you get your apps. It's 100% free. Everything's free. Just give it away. So, good talking with Adam Papesco. A little jealous of his uh, global travels and adventure and tracking lions and whatnot. Sounds good. Also, uh, I forgot to tell you this at the top of the show. I don't even know if I... I don't think I can fit it in, but I'll try. I went to watch baseball at a sports bar the other night because it was the playoffs and I'm a Brewers fan and the Brewers were playing and... They wound up losing, but it was like this sports bar in Silver Lake in L.A., and apparently it was trivia night. Like, every Tuesday it was trivia night, but there happened to be this playoff game, and it was, like, explicitly a sports bar with sports paraphernalia on the walls and, like, a you know, a dozen flat-screen TVs and all the, you know, all the trappings of an American sports bar. But we went there to watch the game, like, because what better place, Right. And uh, then in the middle of the game, towards the end when things were getting tense, this young lady gets on a microphone. See, it's too, this is too long of a fucking story. Who am I talking to on Wednesday? Oh, I uh, have another poet. What's up with that? I have another poet on the show. Her name is Elizabeth Cantwell. Stay tuned. Wait, what? Yeah. Anyway. (laughs) 